Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Welcome back. Today we're working with a passage from Terry Tempest Williams' book, Refuge. So, sort of a funny story. This book touched me profoundly the first time I read it many years ago, and I have reread it, oh my gosh, at least half a dozen times. So, honestly, I was pretty blasé about choosing a selection from it when I added it to my list of books to work with this season. There were several quotes and lines from it that have stuck with me over the years, so I figured I'd just grab one of them and build our episode around that. But it's been important to me to go beyond mere quotes from the books we've discussed here on the show. While it can be tricky with some of the novels to pull longer selections without needing a ton of you know, context information, I have enjoyed the opportunity to dive just a little deeper than you know, quickie quotes for these episodes. And as I pulled out my worn and well-loved copy of this book, I realized that it is so full of incredibly evocative and moving sentences that I love, but they are often nestled into passages that are awesome, but do not work well for our purposes here, which of course, you know, led me to entirely reread this book again. And I ended up struggling to choose between several dozen selections that I'd flagged. You guys thought I was kidding back in episode one when I said I can get gushy about books that I love, but I'll bet you believe me now, don't you? So let's chat for a minute about this book. Now, let's see. It was published back in 1991, and I am going to just straight up read you just a little section from the summary on the back of the book since it sums it up nice and tight. It says, In the spring of 1983, Terry Tempest Williams learned that her mother was dying of cancer. That same spring, Great Salt Lake began to rise to record heights, threatening the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge, and with it, the herons, owls, and snowy egrets that... Williams, a poet and naturalist, had come to gauge her life by. One event was nature at its most random, the other a byproduct of rogue technology. Terry's mother, and Terry herself, had been exposed to the fallout of atomic bomb tests in the 1950s. Now, okay, so throughout the book, she flip-flops between the rising lake levels and the destruction of the bird habitats and the experience of her mother's dying. It's poignant and moving and stunningly beautiful, and it also offers a wide window into the intersections of grief and loss with hope and renewal. So I'm going to leave that there, and let's just dig into Terry Tempest Williams' Refuge. (music) 
She then asked that we respect her decisions, that this was her body and her life, not ours, and that if the tumor was malignant, she would choose not to have chemotherapy. We said nothing. She went on to explain why she had waited a month to go to the doctor. In the long run, I didn't think one month would matter. In the short run, it mattered a great deal. The heat of the sandstone penetrated my skin as I lay on the red rocks. Desert light bathed my soul. And traveling through the inner gorge of Vishnu Schist, the oldest exposed rock in the West, gave me a perspective that will carry me through whatever I must face. Those days on the river were a meditation, a renewal. I found my strength in its solitude. It is with me now. She looked at Dad. Lava Falls, John. We've got some white water ahead. I know the solitude my mother speaks of. It is what sustains me and protects me from my mind. It renders me fully present. I am desert. I am mountains. I am Great Salt Lake. There are other languages being spoken by wind, water, and wings. There are other lives to consider, avocets, stilts, and stones. Peace is the perspective found in patterns. When I see ring-billed gulls picking on the flesh of a decaying carp, I am less afraid of death. We are no more and no less than the life that surrounds us. My fear surfaces in my isolation. My serenity surfaces in my solitude. I have to like resist the urge to immediately go back and read that entire passage again. I just love it so much. So let's dive in because there is so much I want to say here. I want to start right at the beginning where Williams's mother asks her family to respect her decisions and where she tells them that she chooses not to have chemo. Her family's response is to say nothing. And I think this deserves a little exploration of what it means and what it looks like to both step in to this kind of autonomy and also to be on the receiving end of it when someone we love exerts it. She says that it's her body and her life, not theirs. And that's fair, right? Now, in the larger context of this story, Terry Tempest Williams hails from a deeply rooted Mormon family, and much of her mother's identity in their family has been one defined by service to that family. Herself was often subsumed by her roles as mother and wife. So these two assertions of autonomy, where she asks her family to respect her decisions whether they like them or not, and her choice not to see a doctor when she first suspected that something was wrong were major departures for her. And I think this is so courageous. In these two choices, she turned inward and she searched for what was true and right for her. And then she asked those she loved to not only respect, but like ultimately to support that, right? I mean, that takes a deep self-inquiry, especially when what is right and true for ourselves comes into potential conflict with the traditional ways we've dealt with problems or issues in the past. And when we know that what we find there will likely be unwelcome or even hurtful to those we love. And what does it look like to be the loved one asked to accept a choice that grieves us or that we disagree with? Ultimately, even though Williams's mother says that it's her life, it's also true that her choice has a massive impact on the lives of her husband and children as well. So should they get a say? This gets sticky, right? 
Now, back in episode four, I mentioned the writer and activist Glennon Doyle and how she talks a lot in her work about how healthy relationships make us feel both held and free, both deeply supported and loved and autonomous and able to follow what we know to be true for ourselves and what we need to be fully realized. Now, what Williams's mother is saying and asking for here strikes me as exactly that. She is looking down the barrel of her own mortality, and she is ultimately alone inside that journey. She wants her family to be there with her. Likely, she has a need to be, you know, held in love and support. But she's also decided to take charge of how that journey will proceed for her, to assert her right to that freedom. And we can really see that in the next section, right, where she's talking about why she waited a month to see her doctor. She'd known there was something wrong, but opted to wait to see her doctor until after she and her husband returned from a long-awaited river trip down the Grand Canyon. She says that in the long run, she didn't think one month would matter, but in the short run, it mattered a great deal. She talks of the heat of the sandstone on her skin and the desert light on her soul and how traveling through the oldest exposed rock in the West gave her a perspective that would carry her through whatever she had to face. I love how she says, those days on the river were a meditation, a renewal. I found my strength in its solitude and it is with me now. She knew what she needed. She needed time and space and beauty to connect with ancient geology and nature in a way that would allow her the perspective and the acceptance that she needed to face what her future held, or perhaps more accurately to face what her future might no longer hold, the future that she knew she might need the strength to let go of. She weighed the cost of taking it, of taking that time she needed, of taking the space to gather herself for what was next and found it worthwhile, found it the right thing for her. I can't help but go back to our discussion of Cadencia in episode seven, right? I'm reminded here so powerfully of the bull in the bull ring and that need for a place to return to after he's wounded, a place to gather himself for what is coming. For Williams's mother, that Cadencia that place from which she could speak her deepest beliefs was, at least for that period of time, on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Knowing what we need in order to get our legs under us, to find the bits of solid ground within us upon which we can root our courage, our peace, our compassion, our strength, takes exploration. It requires that we get still, that we listen to what is within us, and that we listen for our bodies and our hearts to tell us where to look, to tell us what parts of ourselves are in need of nourishing and nurturing. Again, that requires that we get interested, that we harness our curiosity, and we ask those very questions. What am I feeling? What do I need here? What feels vulnerable? Where is my fear? What can I embrace? Where can I soften? What helps me feel strong? Where can I look for comfort, for connectedness? She needed to soak in the geological time of the canyon, in the solitude of the Colorado River, 
to feel the literal thrashing of lava falls in her body in order to give herself the language, the perspective, and as she so beautifully put it, the renewal to face the figurative whitewater ahead. This listening and learning what we need in moments of hardship and struggle is something that we can practice every day. We can practice getting still and getting curious. We can practice paying attention to what we're feeling at any given moment, noticing where in our bodies we feel it, what our automatic or default responses to those feelings often look like for us, what environments or actions escalate or de-escalate those responses. Staying away from the judgments that tell us what we should need or how we should respond and committing to exploration, committing to curiosity and interest and noticing and observing. That's what this work looks like in our daily lives, how we give ourselves the tools to hear our truths and hear our needs. Now, in the next paragraph, William says, peace is the perspective found in patterns. And in this paragraph, she talks about the language of wind and water and wings, of considering the lives of birds and stones that surround her, of how seeing the cycles of gulls feeding on fish connects her to those patterns and eases her fear. Her mother found that peace and perspective in the canyon, in the patterns of time, the patterns of water and sun and stone. And again, this is what noticing looks like in practice. William's paying attention to the life teeming around her, noticing the patterns present in the gulls feeding on carp. Her mother noticing and being interested in the rock of the canyon walls carved away by a millennia of water brushing against it or paying attention to the feel of her skin touched by sunshine. These patterns offer us perspective that we can miss if we're not paying attention. And it's in these perspectives that peace lives. Now, finally, I want to talk about solitude. In the last two sentences, William says, My fears surface in my isolation. My serenity surfaces in my solitude. I love this so much. How do we distinguish isolation from solitude? I mean, both imply aloneness. So what's the difference? Connection. Connection is the difference, right? Isolation speaks to being about disconnected. We can feel isolated in a room full of people, can't we? Some of the loneliest moments I have ever experienced in my life have been when I was with a person or surrounded by people with whom I felt inherently disconnected. And it goes even one step further, right? Because feeling isolated not only implies that we're disconnected, but that under that disconnection is a craving for that not to be the case, a craving for connection. We can see why fear would flourish here, I think. If isolation is about being alone and disconnected despite a deep craving for connection, we can see how that might impact our sense of worthiness and belonging. We're made for connection. We are inherently pack animals who need some measure of community, support, acceptance, and belonging. And isolation leaves us feeling alone in the dark. But solitude, solitude is born of connection. While it may require that we be alone, it also speaks powerfully to getting to know ourselves, to connecting, as we talked about in episode three, 
to the softer voice of our own lives, to truly connect with our own voice, to do the work of hearing ourselves, our needs, where we find our carencia. We often need solitude. At the beginning of this last paragraph, Williams says that she knows the solitude her mother speaks of, that it renders her fully present. She says, I am desert. I am mountains. I am Great Salt Lake. And later, she says, we are no more and no less than the life that surrounds us. Her solitude is how she connects to that life surrounding her, to the patterns that lead her to peace, to the moment that she's in, to the environment that she's in, which is exactly the opposite of being isolated, right? Solitude can be a carencia all its own, I think a place where we can gather ourselves, a retreat from which we can speak our deepest beliefs, a place that we can hear what those beliefs even are. Williams, Williams's mother found strength in the solitude of the river. And I think she might have meant this in two ways, actually. There was her own solitude while on the river, which is, I think, a little bit obvious. But also, I think there was an implication about the solitude belonging to the river, to the water itself as it travels from its beginnings as snow high in the Rocky Mountains, and then it tumbles over dams and cuts canyons through deserts before merging with the salty ocean in the Gulf of California. That water makes a long and winding trip, one that requires change and adaptation and connects four states and two countries and multiple ecosystems as it carves its own path. Now, like the Colorado, we all make our own long and winding trips and we face our own dams, obstacles that can bring us to our knees sometimes. And if we can embrace the solitude necessary to carve our own paths and take what we need, we can often find peace and perspective in the patterns that we find. We can often hear ourselves clearly enough that we can connect better with those we love. Ultimately, our decisions are ours. These are our bodies and our lives, and we owe it to ourselves to find whatever literal or figurative desert light we need to bathe our souls. In our solitude, we can get curious. We can look around us and pay attention to what we notice. We can find our connection to the life that surrounds us, whether that's the lives of birds and stones and water, or the lives of those we love, or the life we want for ourselves in whatever time we have on this earth. The solitary river each of us runs can be our meditation. It can be our renewal, the carencia where we gather ourselves and from where we can speak our deepest beliefs. Our fears surface in our isolation, but our serenity surfaces in our solitude. Now again, that's Terry Tempest Williams' book, Refuge, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. As always, you can find the link to the book in the show notes at cindygibinoli.com backslash podcast. And before I share this week's listener contribution, I want to mention that we have three episodes left in season one here on the Say the Word podcast. I can't believe it. It has flown by and I am already excited to begin planning season two, which will debut on July 3rd. 
Now, as I plan the next three months of episodes, I would love to hear from you. Is there anything you'd like me to consider including a recommendation that you think would make a great episode? I'm only one person, and as such, there are, of course, enormous gaps in my own reading, so please don't be shy. You can leave a comment in the show notes, again, at cindyjivinoli.com backslash podcast, or shoot me an email at staycurious at cindyjivinoli.com. Now, I'm also going to be including monthly bonus episodes next season, featuring interviews with folks where we'll chat about a book passage or a poem that they love. So if you know anyone I should interview, please send them my way. Okay, so this week's listener contribution comes from Erin M., and she says, Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive series are my favorite books of all times, and I get new tidbits of inspiration every time I read them. My favorite quote from my most recent reading is the one from Oathbringer, the quote, To love the journey is to accept no such end. I have found through painful experience that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. And Aaron says, I just love the idea that there is always a next step, no matter where we are in our lives. It's not about figuring out what the right thing to do down the road might be, but just taking the next step. Oh, I love that, Erin. You're about the fourth person to recommend Brandon Sanderson to me, so I will definitely add him to my ever-growing to-be-read list. So thank you so much. Okie dokie. So next week is Kate Morton's novel, The Secret Keeper. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.